Jesus exalting, Jesus abiding, Jesus obeying, Jesus proclaiming people. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue our series on the amazing grace of God and looking at some of the things that are entailed in the grace of God towards us. A lot of times we think about God's grace is simply manifest in our salvation, but so much and everything, in fact, of our spiritual lives is really dependent on the grace of God. And this morning, we're going to look at the fact that in Christ, you are secure, that your security in the sight of God is a gift of his grace. And I don't know about you and maybe some of the situations you've endured throughout your life. Uh, if you had parents who may be separated or divorced, uh, there's a very real chance that security is something that you struggle with. Uh, when I was in junior high and high school and dating and having girlfriends and all, there's always that fear of being dumped. There's always that fear that somebody's going to be better looking, not that that was a very high bar to reach, but there's going to be somebody else to get her attention. There's always that insecurity of being dumped. And even something I wrestled with once Julie and I got married was, okay, is she, am I really secure in this? You know, am I really safe in this? And is this really, uh, I do, is this really uh, forever? And praising God that it is. And so with all of those things and others that we go through in life, sometimes we think about our standing with God and we can wrestle with the reality that in Christ, our standing with God is secure. And this morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. Some very important truths that are brought forth in this passage. Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31, when it says, what then are we to say about these things? So as you're reading the Bible, this is one of those phrases that you want to pay attention to because everything that's about to be discussed in the following verses is based on all the previous verses. And so it helps to understand what all those previous verses were talking about because verse 31 says, what then are we to say about these things? So what are these things? If you just go back in chapter 8, verses 18 to 25, uh, the writer talks about our present sufferings, how they're... They, they don't compare to our future glory. That all the things we go through, all the hardships, all the struggles, all the sufferings, don't compare to the glory that we're going to experience when we're with God for eternity. And then verses 26 to 30, he talks about how God works in our lives through the good times and all the bad times. So, so far in chapter 8, there's a lot of emphasis on how we as followers of Jesus are going to endure struggles and hardships and difficulties. And so that's why verse 31 says, what then are we to say about these things? And he answers the question saying, if God is for us, who is against us? If God is for us, who is against us? This is a truth that sounds so simple, but so many followers of Jesus struggle with this reality. If God is for us, and of course the unspoken reality behind that phrase is God is for us. Do you realize that as a follower of Jesus, God is for you. God is not against you. There are so many people, even as followers of Jesus, who can live their lives in this thought that God is up there just waiting to pounce on them 
They didn't just bring an iron fist down on them because they misstepped or did something wrong or, or had a, a, a thought they shouldn't have had or uh, told a white lie or something. And not that those things don't need to be addressed. But there's this constant fear that God is up there just waiting to punish you. I, I lived with that for many, many years thinking that if I didn't meet a certain standard in my devotional time, spend enough time in prayer, or read enough scripture every day, that God was mad at me. It was difficult for me to come to grips with that fact that God is for me. God is on your side. God is not waiting for you to mess up. God is there cheering you on, supporting you, encouraging you. So if God is for us, who is against you? Verse 32, it says, He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with him also give us everything else? Do you know the value of something is based on one simple reality? When I was a kid, I would collect baseball cards, and there's this magazine that would tell you how much every card was worth. And so if we found a card that we thought was really special, we'd go through this magazine and look to find out how much the card was worth. And it could say five cents, it could say five dollars, it could say fifty dollars. But that number is irrelevant, because ultimately the question is, what will somebody pay you for it? I mean, the the magazine can tell me it's worth 50 bucks, but if no one's willing to pay 50 bucks, it's not worth 50 bucks. If all I can get is $5 for the card, the card's just worth $5. What is our value as God's children? What's our value as followers of Jesus? Verse 32 gives us an answer to that, where it says, He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us. What was God willing to pay for you? His son. That's a lot. That's a price that we cannot even begin to comprehend. You know, there's this thing out there called NFTs. I don't know if they're still, there's like this little window where they were really popular. Basically, they're images online. And people are paying millions of dollars for these images. And of course, my thought is you can find any image you want on the Internet and whether it's copyrighted or not, you could just right click and copy or save that image. People are paying millions of dollars just for this image online. An amount of money that I can't even begin to comprehend. When I think about my life, as you think about your life, What was our worth in the sight of God? Well, it's answered in how much he was willing to pay. He was willing to give the life of his son for you and for me. So if God was willing to pay that much, verse 32 goes on to say, how will he not with him also give us everything else? So why is this being brought into the equation? Because again, so much of chapter 8 has been devoted to the sufferings and hardships that Christians endure. And what's one of the questions that we typically ask when we're going through hardships, when we're going through struggles? It's a question that is asked many times throughout the Psalms. God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you turned your back on me? Why don't you care about me anymore? Lord, why is this happening to me? What sin is in my life that's causing all of these bad things to happen? Anybody ever think that? 
Paul's saying here, God paid the price of his son for you. He's not going to play fast and loose with you. He's going to have his hand upon you. No matter what you go through, God is for you. God is working in you. That is such a vital thing for us to understand. That no matter what we go through, in 25 years as a pastor, I've been asked a lot of hard questions. And I used to think that I had to come up with some deep, profound, life-changing theological answer to them. But realizing that those answers don't exist. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did God let this happen to me? I don't know. But I know that God loves you. As painful as your situation might be, I don't know why it's happening, why he's allowing it, but I know that he loves you, I know that he's for you, and I know that somehow he's in this working for his glory and your good. And I know that that can be sound like a cheap answer until you've lived through it and experienced that reality for yourself, that looking at the trials and the pain that you have gone through in life, realizing that even though I didn't understand it at the time, even though all I wanted to do was beg God to take this away from me, that ultimately I look back and see that God was in it. God is good. God loves me. He's for me. And he never lost control of my life. If God paid such a high price for you, he will certainly protect that investment. So verse 33 says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? The word charge is just who's going to come in as an accuser? Who's going to call into question God's people? Who's going to bring an accusation against you that will make God say, oh, wow, I didn't know about that. Deal's off. Who is worthy to bring a charge? Well, he's going to answer that in a second, but please understand that the only person who brings an accusation of guilt against the people of God, Revelation 12.10 tells us is Satan. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. That the thoughts of accusation, the thoughts that God doesn't love you anymore, the thoughts that you're not worthy of God's love, the thought that God has given up on you, those thoughts come from Satan, not from God. Because verse 33 goes on to say, it is God who justifies. God is the one who justifies, who declares and pronounces us righteous and innocent in his sight. So verse 33 asks a question. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? And then it goes on to answer by saying, it is God who justifies. In other words, God is the only one who could truly bring an accusation against you that has any merit or value. But here's the reality of that same God. He's justified you. The only one who's able to bring a charge of guilt against you has pronounced you innocent, not guilty, righteous, pure, and blameless. God is the only one worthy to bring a charge. And as he stands in that seat as the eternal judge, he looks at you and says, you're innocent. Because all your crimes were put on Jesus, so there's nothing left to stand on your case. And so verse 34 asks another question, who is to condemn? Who is to judge us worthy of punishment? He answers, it is Christ who died, or rather who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And I love this imagery. 
It's like, who can condemn us in the sight of God? The only one worthy to condemn us in the sight of God is Jesus. And guess what's also true of Jesus? Jesus is our judge, but he's also our defense attorney. That's a pretty good situation. When the judge is also the one who's interceding your case, who's appealing for your defense, that's good. Jesus is the only one who condemn, and Jesus says, I took all of your crimes on myself. There's nothing. There's nothing that can be charged against you, nothing that can bring condemnation into you. And so then verse 35, if nobody other than God can charge us with guilt, and he's pronounced us not guilty, if Jesus is the only one who can condemn us, and he has declared that there's no condemnation in him, then verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Literally, who will divorce us from the love of Christ? What can tear us away from God's love for us? Who can tear us away from our standing in Christ? And he raises some scenarios in verse 35. Will affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. Look at those scenarios. Affliction, distress, persecution, Famine, nakedness, peril, sword. I once went to a church where if you sniffled or sneezed, you would get pulled aside and asked what sin was in your life that's brought on this sickness. We have this idea that if you follow God and if you are living a good Christian life, then everything is going to be smooth sailing. But if bad things happen, if things aren't working out for you, if trouble comes into your life, that means that you have stepped outside the will of God. What's Paul arguing here? Who can divorce us? Who can pull us away from the love of Christ? He's like, afflictions, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all these horrible things that can come into our lives. Does that mean that we've been separated from the love of Christ? Verse 37, no. Short answer, no. Not a single one of those things can pull us away from the love of Christ. Not one of those things is an indication that we have somehow been separated from the love of Christ, that Christ has turned his back on us or has forsaken us or said, I want nothing to do with you anymore. None of those things. Rather, it says, no, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. I don't know what that means. More than victorious. I mean, victorious is a pretty big deal. How are you more than victorious? I have an inkling. Uh, I, I've shared before that when I played football in high school, we were horrible. Only won one game in two years. Many of the teams who played us, as we'd see them get off of their bus and come on the field, it looked like grown men, and we looked like we were fourth graders. And the beating we received was pretty bad. I think they tasted something of more than victorious over us. Kind of like you don't even have to exert effort to be the winner. It says, in all of these things, affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. 
So this takes some of that thinking and turns it on its head, this thinking that if you are following Jesus and nothing is going right in your life, that has nothing to do with God's love for you. It means nothing for your standing in Christ. In fact, in all those things, you are more than victorious. Not only are you winning, but you are more than winning. You are rising above those circumstances. In all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. The word is huper nikao, which we, get, we have the word Nike, the victorious. So it's a hyper-victor. A victor who's had too many cups of coffee. I don't know. We're hyper-victorious through Christ, no matter what we face. And then he makes this declaration of verse 38. For I am convinced. He's saying, I am confident. I will bet everything I got on this truth. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And I love how after listing all of those things in verse 35, the affliction, the distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, he goes on in verse 38 to throw all these other generalities in there. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all creation. What does he leave out? Nothing. Pretty much covers anything that's possible. He says none of it can tear you away from God's love. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And it's easy for us to apply what we experience in the human realm to our relationship with God. That if you mess up once in a friendship, that friendship could be over. If you make a mistake or say something wrong in a relationship, that person could end that relationship. All the little things that you could say or do in a relationship that could sever that relationship forever. And we can easily think the same thing applies to God. Paul says here, there is absolutely nothing in all of existence that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing. God loves you. God is for you. He is on your side. And that will never, ever, ever, ever change, no matter what. No matter what you go through, no matter what you face, no matter what your circumstances are, even no matter how bad we mess up. And that's the one that makes us uncomfortable. No matter how bad we mess up, it doesn't change God's love. Is there repentance that might be required? Yeah. But nothing separates you from his love. Nothing changes his love for you. I know I've said before that there's nothing my children can do that will make me stop loving them. And for some people, that doesn't apply. For some people, they say, oh, I know full well it's already happened that because of something I did, my parents have disowned me. So we struggle with even a parent relationship being that secure. So how can God possibly have that kind of love? How can a just, 
holy, perfect God. Look at me. In all of my mess, in all of the mistakes I commit, all of the stupid things I do, how can he still love me? Because he does. Because he loves you so much, John 3.16 tells us that he gave his son for you. That's something that is highly cherished. I can't imagine even paying $20 for something and be like, oh, I don't care what happens to it. He gave the price of his son. There's nothing anymore that will cause him to say, you know what? Even that price wasn't enough. It's not worth it to hold on. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No affliction, no distress, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness, no peril, no sword, no death, no life, no angels, no rulers, nor things present, no things to come, no powers, no height, no depth, nothing in all of creation can separate us from God's love for Hi, I'm Jennifer Mooney. Welcome to what is our new Hope Interrupted podcast based on the work from our book, Hope Interrupted, that I co-authored with my good friend, Byron McCauley. Hey, Jennifer. You know, I'm looking forward to this podcast as much as I was look, looking forward to writing this book with you. We're hoping to interview some uh, high-impact folks as well as have a little fun. We're going to cover stories of hope to learn more about our podcast and our book, please visit www.hopeinterrupted.com.